All right, guys, and welcome back to this week's Yawa. Oh, just a second. Okay, and seriously, welcome back to this week's Yawa. We've got some new equipment, and I want to stop, start, say the things. Stop and start. To begin with. Stop. That uh, we got a ton of questions this week. A ton of really great questions. A ton of really great questions. We were going through, and usually we try and select the ones that are going to be most relevant to the largest group of people. And it a was a lot like, of repeat questions trying to get in there. Circle, 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 circle. Oh shoot, we've circled all of them now. So to start this off with, we're going to say that to anybody that doesn't get their questions answered this week, we will attempt next week. Or you always have the opportunity to go to our Patreon account. That is patreon.com. There's a link on our website and we'll throw it in the description below, but there is a, uh, excuse me, our Patreon account gives you the ability to ask us questions just like this at any point in time. So we're here. Some of these questions I wanted to just throw out because we were reading through them are going to take more of a conversation to get all of the information from you to make sure that we truly know what the situation is. And that's where Patreon can really be helpful because you can ask a question. I can return with more questions yeah. and we can actually get to the bottom of things and get you some good advice because we can have a better idea of what's going on. Or heck, you can even shoot us a video on there so that we can see a training session or see a session of what's going on, um, which a picture is worth a thousand words. So a video is worth what? A million? I don't know. I just threw that out there. Probably depends on how long the video is based on the number of pictures to make it. Anyhow, all of you guys on Patreon, we want to reach out and say thank you for your patronage for being signed up. Um, The money that goes into that account goes directly back into creating more content for everybody. So anybody that's part of that is part of this. This allowed us to get some new audio equipment because we had a lot of questions about when are you guys going to turn this into a podcast? We'd rather just listen to the questions. So this is what this setup is for. We're actually be switching over to this being more podcast-like. We'll invite guests. We'll do other stuff like that. And then we'll be able to also throw that on YouTube just the same but it's going to have a slightly different feel. So we have better equipment, so there's no more echo. There's, and that's uh, thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys. So we're going to jump right in and start answering your questions. So it says... Uh, Aurora's underscore agriculture. Agriculture. All right. My one-year GSP is nuts, headstrong, and deliberately disobeys, only responds to food, help. Okay, so this is a really common problem, especially when we do all of the recommending and all of the, let's use positive reinforcement, let's use their meals to teach them, and clicker training. Clicker training involves a a positive-based, well, positive is the wrong word, but uh, a reward for the dog. And in that situation, um, if you aren't doing that 100% properly, you're going to end up in a situation where you have the dog that's only responding to when you have the bowl of food out or when the feeding session is. And the key to that is variable reinforcement. Now, variable reinforcement, the best real world example that I can give for that is gambling. Some people have done it. Other people understand how it works. But if you go to play a slot machine or you go to play cards or whatever, um, casinos are built off of variable reinforcement. They, you play the game, you win. It's like, whew, that was cool. 
Uh, you play again, you lose, you lose, you win a little bit, you lose, you lose, you win a little bit. You, you're always hoping for that jackpot. And as long as you win consistently enough, you keep playing the game within time, restraints and everything else, but the same thing for our docs. So as long as they're winning, they want to keep playing. Well, you're in your situation. As soon as he stops winning, he doesn't want to play anymore. So we have to incorporate variable reinforcement, and that's going to actually allow you to extend the uh, the time between your wins to the point where you have a more consistent dog. Once you are through that, then we move on to color conditioning. We have a, a behavior that's completely developed and a dog that fully understands what we're asking. Then we can say, let's introduce the collar here and build consistency in those high distraction situations. Now, the last part of that, or it's actually the first part of that, is my one-year-old GSP is nuts. The other thing that you probably need to be working on is uh, we need to discuss what your daily routine is, one, and then two, um, working on patience. Patience is going to be key to kind of taking the nuts factor down, and place training would be how we would recommend doing that, depending on, again, what that daily schedule is, so... If you guys want to reach out to us with a little more info on that, we can help. But ultimately, variable reinforcement is going to be the key to getting rid of that only response to food problem. Great question. Next question from Instagram. By Chance Photography 22, would you train a four-year-old Dishla? Limited training, great instincts, and drive. So the question is, would we train a four-year-old Dishla? Definitely, we've trained dogs up to nine years old before, so it definitely isn't age restrictive. Um, our, if you're talking about you training your Vishla, it sounds like you've done some training already. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is you can always teach an old dog new tricks. It just sometimes takes a little bit longer because your four-year-old is become conditioned to their routine and their behaviors that they've been doing for the last four years. So learning something new isn't impossible. It just sometimes is going to take a little bit longer, more repetition, uh, more patience on the trainer's part. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great question. Reality, reality to keep. Do you only use vibrate on the collars or condition to stem as well? Great question. We start uh, almost all of the vibrate or all of the color conditioning with vibrate conditioning, but then we do go to stimulation. Um, one great example was given to us before. A uh, really easy way to explain this is the level of stimulation basically is going to correlate to the level of distraction. And a good way to think about it is if you actually, if you're talking with somebody, you talk at a normal level. You can hear me, I can hear you. You end up at a concert. That noise level goes up. and so That's I've, your distraction. That's the distraction. Be equal to the distraction. And the higher that noise level or distraction goes, I have to basically yell at the person that's right next to me. Like, hey, can you hear what I'm saying? This concert's awesome. You know, and that's the only way that you can. That's the only way that you can hear me. But I'm if I'm glad that he didn't really like scream and shout because I'm pretty sure I'd blow my eardrums out. <laughs> but as soon as we leave that concert, again, if I'm still yelling at you, be like, bro. You're blowing my eardrums out. blowing my eardrums out. So the same thing with a collar. You've got to utilize in a low distraction situation. You're going to be able to use low levels or vibrate. High distraction situation where you're going to have to use a higher level. Now that specific level changes for every dog. We like to say we use the lowest level of stimulation necessary to get the desired response. So if your dog has a full understanding of the collar and the conditioning process and they're ignoring you, turn that collar up. Absolutely. Great question. Next question from 
CDN Blue, I believe this is Canadian Blue. They've signed some of their questions in the past on Instagram. Can you do a breakdown on when you would use NIC versus continuous stimulation on the e-collar? So I think this is a really good segue question based on the previous question. Definitely, there are times that we use NIC versus continuous stimulation as a general rule, which it can be fluid as well. Uh, I usually use continuous stimulation or continuous vibrate in situations where I need movement. For example, I'm calling the dog to me for recall. That's going to use continuous stimulation because the dog understands to shut that stimulation off. They need to comply and come all the way to me. If they just feel a pulse or one tap of that, they think, well, I've already completed what I was supposed to do, so I'm done listening. I'm done doing that task. This would be something that I think is pretty inconsistent as far as dog trainers go. Yes, um, I... We're we're big believers of consistent um, collar pressure, whether that be vibrate or low-level stim or whatever the level of stim is, in situations with movement where I've heard the exact opposite from other trainers. So there can be a personal preference or an individual dog preference, but definitely if we're doing it, that's the way we're going to be starting it. Same with movement to get your dog to move, to kennel up on a dog bed, go into a crate, uh, load up in the back of the truck. That's going to be continuous stimulation or vibration. And then Nick is typically used for things without movement. Um, for example, woe training. We use, um, in the beginning stages, we use stimulation on the belly, but then when we transition to the neck collar, we are using the Nick stimulation. Yeah. I think that gives the dog more time to think. So we tap on the collar as a reminder, and then it gives them the opportunity to go, what did he ask me? Whoa, stand there. Don't move. So. And we typically also use Nick in conjunction when we're teaching uh, healing and con- and we're transitioning healing from collar pressure or leash pressure to collar pressure. So you think about when you're given those little taps or pops on the leash, that's when you're overlaying with those Nicks on the collar. Yeah. Great question. Um, any other times where we're using Nick versus continuous? Well, I mean, there are, but it's going to be yeah. specific situation dependent and dog dependent. I mean, it, it just kind of depends, but... Yes, there is definitely a difference, um, but those would be the, the main gist of it. Next question from Matt Beaumont. Uh, what bird launcher do you recommend for pigeons? Uh, we use DT Systems 500 series bird launchers. They are available on our store, standingstonekennels.com slash store. Check it out. I want to just mention too, great for pigeons, but you can use them for quail and chucker as well. All of those small birds, they're going to be too small for pheasants, but we typically yeah. don't do a lot of training with pheasants uh that's when we go hunting when we're starting to use pheasants um pheasants are kind of a crappy bird to train with they, well you can contain them in a launcher or in a cone or something like that to keep them from running off but they're big time running birds and then you're trying to get situations where your dog learns to with point young dogs trying to train and get those situations yeah they're not as but we definitely them. love dt systems um, launchers collars all their systems work really well um as well as Uh, are very responsive. Timing in dog training is very important. So having that response on the bird launcher, when you need that bird to flush, it needs to flush. So absolutely. Great question. Next question from Sarah Fenley on Instagram tips on getting puppy to love her crate. She cries for 10 to 20 minutes before calming down and you put a sad smiley face. (laughs) 
Ethan's I'm loving sorry, these I'm sound having, effects. I'm having too much fun with that. So tips on getting your puppy to settle down. First of all, if your puppy's settling down in only 10 to 20 minutes, you're pretty lucky. Uh, that's not an overly pro- prolonged amount of time for no, them to bad. get settled down. Uh, something to keep in mind, though, it's hard to listen to that 10 to 20 minutes. If you need to, just step out of the room, um, step out of the house during that time frame, because it is sometimes wearing to listen to and you feel bad. Uh, the worst thing that you can do is give in when your puppy's crying and whining in their crate because they are going to learn, hey, I got out of my crate when I did this. I'm just going to do it louder and longer until I get what I want next time. It's exponentially better or worse, Worse, excuse me. And the opposite can happen. So if you don't give in to your puppy's demands, they're going to be like, well, this is obviously not working and it's going to get exponentially better and they're going to calm down and quiet down faster. But a few little tips and tricks that you can try if you haven't already. Giving your puppy a special chew bone or chew treat to have only when they're in their crate to make that a special place. Uh, Throwing a towel over the front of their crate so they can't see out what's going on and be um, wanting to be part of that. You know, puppies have FOMO. They don't want to miss out on all the fun and excitement that's going on in the family. Uh, And one other thing that we like to try is some background noise, music, TV playing, so that the puppy doesn't necessarily feel that they're alone. Um, especially if you have to be out of the house during those crate periods. So, Yeah, we found uh, even overnight to to begin with, puppies come, they're used to being with littermates and they're used to being around other dogs' situation like that, not alone. So having that crate near the bed or in the bedroom or close to the other dogs, whatever's going on, usually makes them feel more comfortable faster. Yep. So, so try those things, see if they help, but really don't be discouraged. 10 to 20 minutes is not bad numbers at all. Not at all. They're just puppies. Uh, Kay Langston, my GSP gets really carsick, throws up and drools everywhere. How can I fix this problem? Well, first of all, car sickness is a sucky one. Um, I've got a question for you. Is your dog in a crate or is it bouncing around the cab? Um, Just crating them, if that's the case, can be a big helper with that because they're not moving and uneven. They're a little more contained. A little more contained. Even on the, uh, from a traveling standpoint, we feel like a slightly smaller crate is going to be safer because usually they stay down, lower, lower center, center of gravity. Of gravity. Yep. We've had some bigger crates before that dogs are standing up in. And if you have to turn or do something. Slam on the brakes. They're bonking around in there yeah. and ping-ponging so, around. Smaller crate is better. Um, but then at the same time, uh, what ends up happening is they get motion sickness. If you haven't ever been motion sick, you under, you you wouldn't quite understand. But basically, if you can keep them focused on something else besides the sickness, usually like a, a good chew bone, something that they're not going to end up in their stomach, or a lot of times they'll just vomit that back up anyway. But like, something uh, that they have to work at, like really work uh, at. pork chomp chew like a or big one. That's enticing, though. It needs to be something that's special and got a lot of flavor and scent so that they want to work on that. Otherwise, they're going to be like, I don't feel good anyway. I'm not messing with this. And it keeps their focus off of the fact that they're car sick. Now, if it gets really bad and and um, the other side, it would be not feeding before your car trips, if at all possible. But if it gets, um, if none of those things really help, the you can actually give the dogs uh, Dramamine or some form of anti-nausea medicine, and that would be just something to talk to your vet about. So, great question. Next question. Sorry about the car sickness. That sucks. Yeah, it's tough. But uh, short trips as well, 
where yeah. your puppy gets used to those and then consistent car trips. I know it's a pain that they're getting sick every time, but the more that they can become used to that uh, and desensitized to it, that should hopefully help because otherwise they take a car ride once a year to go to the vet. Well, that's going to be a pretty big uh, transition and different environment and different situation than they're used to. So yep, for sure. Next question that we're going to move on to is from Emily T. Daniel on Instagram. Owning a GSP in an apartment. Always wanted one, but everything online says no. So, I can tell you. From experience. Speaking from experience only. Yeah. Ethan and I got our first short hair shortly after we were married. We got her in May. Uh We were due to close on a house in June. June June, 1, actually. And we got, got her May 19th. May 19th like, ah, for two his weeks birthday. I'm the... like, we can do this. This is fine. Yeah. Apartment living, it'll be no big deal. House fell through. Didn't yeah. move into the house. So we now had a GSP puppy in an apartment on the third floor. Yeah. So things that are difficult is potty breaks because mm-hmm. you're trying to house train your puppy. That's pretty time sensitive that when your puppy needs to go out, they need to go out now. They don't need to walk down a hundred hallways and six flights of stairs to get an opportunity to go to the bathroom as well as, um, if they do have a potty accident, well, now you want to take them outside to finish. If you interrupt that behavior, well, that's going to be really difficult too to get them all the way outside. Potty uh, training would be a little tough. Yeah. So potty training can be difficult. Also you have neighbors, um, right there next to your wall. So if your puppy's struggling to settle down and that crate training problem that we were talking about is happening and your puppies being extra noisy. Your neighbors may not like that. And that could cause problems for you in an apartment complex. That could probably be a dog thing all the way around though. Um, but, uh, ultimately GSPs need a job. So you have to be dedicated to that. And a lot of people, um, I really don't see a whole lot of difference between the actual apartment and a house if, as long as you're getting the dog the proper exercise. Your commitment to that breed, because, whether you live in a house or an apartment, should be the same. Yeah, if you have a big backyard, ooh, um, it's still not the proper exercise for the dogs. They need to be going and working and they need to be going and doing something. So I don't think that that aspect of it changes as long as you're committed. You know, we're going to the dog park or you go to daycare a couple days a week or you go on the weekends to training events and things like that where you're working on training goals with your dog. So I I would say as long as you're committed that there's a good potential that it should be no problem. Um, But there are going to be a few things like Kat was talking about that still could be struggles for you. So good question. Uh, next, what do we got? This is from Zach Snaps. Uh, Zach Snaps. Hopefully this can make it to the Yawa. Hey. It did. You're, you're here. Um, I have a one-year-old Vishla female. Uh, her, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You're here. Okay. So I have a one-year-old Vishla female. Her obedience is above average. Good for you. But the bird work is below. She is not excited about dead birds. I have a limited amount of pigeons as my coop is recuperating. (laughs) But plenty of frozen and dead birds. Any help is appreciated. So a one-year-old Vishla, I'm going to say, first of all, depending on the exact lines that you got your Vishla from, that's not that abnormal for them to be a little slower to come around. We've Just seen slower that. to mature and be yeah. ready for more advanced formal training, bird work, that sort of thing. It can take a year or more before they're ready. Yeah. A lot of them that we've seen are 
those late bloomers. Um, but they're usually, like you said, great obedience, excellent family dogs, easy to live with. Yep, 100%. And so, they come around. Don't be disheartened. I would say frozen and dead birds, um, the, if you think about it, there's not a whole lot that's exciting to those. They don't move. They don't flap. They don't do anything. So it could be when you have a dog that's in that lower drive department, that could be boring. Now, at the same time, with the live birds, you've got to be careful of the dog that's a little more hesitant or maybe less driven that the live birds actually could startle them. So you want to make sure that introduction goes right. If you haven't already, I'm sure you have, but check out our videos that we show how to lock wings on pigeons. So they're not flapping and hitting them in the face. Yep. So that you can build that uh, appropriately. But really what it's going to come down to is you're going to need access to those things. So try and find a local dog club or um, look at uh, navhda.org, NAVDA's website. There's a lot of great NAVDA chapters that have training days, um, usually once or twice a month, depending on the club. And then you can get with some people maybe that can help you get those resources that you're looking for. Yep. So, Good question. Next question from Unguided Fly. He specifically has told me in previous Yawas, so he's been <laughs> featured before, not to say UN Guided Fly. So Unguided Fly. Hey guys, I'm raising my 14-week-old GSP pretty diligently to your program. Started collar training this week on place and recall is going well. I thought Kat said to phase out treats when the e-collar comes in. Is that just a hard and fast rule? I've still been doing some random treats when she's just chilling on her bed and woeing until I release her in random treats during the day when she's been chilling. So, phasing out treats completely... No, not necessarily. Uh, a lot of times, if you've watched some of our videos, when we're starting collar conditioning, we're overlaying the collar with treats to begin with, as well as I'm a big proponent of rewarding good behaviors randomly, like you're saying. So if your dog's relaxing on the dog bed or sitting in the kitchen, not jumping on the counters, things like that, I throw them a reward, a food treat or a baby carrot, if that's what I've got that I'm cooking. And Those situations are just fine to reward the puppy. Now, why we say to phase out treats when you're truly collar conditioning is I want to make sure that the puppy is being conditioned to the collar as well as once we get through that initial collar conditioning phase that we can actually proof the collar. And if we're still using treats at that point, it can be, uh, you can be unsure if your puppy's truly responding to the collar or just still doing it because they're very cooperative and they want that food reward and that treat. So that's why I typically want to phase out treats Mm -hmm. completely when we start doing some of that more conditioning and proofing of the collar, as well as a lot of times when we are collar conditioning dogs, it's for a purpose like good recall during retrieves. And I don't want to have treats involved when I'm doing retrieving work either. Good question. Great question. All right. So, we got another great Yawa question for our buddy that's a vet. So, it says, for your buddy that's a vet. Now, the cool thing about this new uh, soundboard for mixing all this stuff is we can actually phone a friend and it can record all at the same time. Isn't that awesome? Let's do it. So, we're going to try it out, see how it works for us. Hello. Hi, is this Dr. Peter Armstrong? It is. Hey, how well, are you? Welcome to the show, yeah. Dr. Peter Armstrong. Hey, guys. We've got a question for your vet buddy. And that, okay. would, be, that would be you. From oh, This works better when you guys come down here. That would be full, full 
three shows worth, you know? I know, I know. We'll make sure to do that again. But we thought we could get you on this one for a quick question from Rose Show 24. What is your and the vet's stance on raw feeding? I have raw fed my Chessie for years and he is stronger than ever. Starting my golden on it now. Was curious your take. Um, so I think raw, I guess there's two, two sides to this. So I think raw can be fed well. Um, I think some people, I have some clients that feed raw and have really good success with that. Um, you essentially are becoming a nutritionist for your pet. Um, and so as long as all the categories are getting met and, and we're getting a balanced diet for a pet, um, most of the sources of raw food are actually um, pretty decent. I, I have had some clients before that, for instance, buy their meat from co-ops um, that will actually take and that, that uh, food is actually tested for some certain strains of bacteria that tend to cause um, dietary issues. And so I've actually seen that done successfully it's not cheap by any stretch of the imagination um but i think that's the the flip side of that is is to not to say that just because raw can work really well for you does it mean that commercially made dog foods that have a lot of research and are formulated for pets is bad for pets either um and so i think that's where a lot of people think well this is the only option for my dog um i don't think that's true that's that's uh true for you and i think that's you know, if, if somebody chooses to, to eat a certain class of foods for themselves, just because they do that doesn't mean that it makes it bad for the rest of the public. And I think it goes the same for the, for the dog food as well. Um, there's lots of dogs that live nice, happy lives on good commercial dog food. Now, are all commercial dog foods made equal? No way. No. <laughs> but the there's, same can be said for feeding raw. Not all raw diets are the same. For sure. Throwing for your sure. dog a leftover steak that was freezer yeah. burnt is not feeding raw. Um, For sure. And, so. and most of the people that feed raw are, are like they are feeding at a much higher intensity level. Like the people that I've seen that do it really well, but I have also seen some disasters. I had a client um, that had some problems with some bones one time and that became a big problem. Mm-hmm. And um, because some of those diets include some parts of bone, mm-hmm. chicken bags, um, and, yeah, uh, turkey necks, things like that. Mm-hmm. And those, those can become a problem and I've seen those be a problem. So, yeah. um, always do it with caution. I think, you know, some of the people that get into those co-ops, I think there's some good products that are, that are put out there, but, um, for the general public, um, I don't think that dogs, um, benefit by being fed raw. And again, this is my opinion, but I don't think dogs benefit by being fed raw over commercially made high quality dog foods. That's had a whole group of dog nutritionists developing it. Um, correct. But there is some really great resources out there if you do want to feed raw on making sure that you have the right percentages of bone and protein and things like that. We don't feed raw. No. For our situation, it would be unrealistic with so many dogs. I mean, it's it's just thinking about traveling with six or seven dogs and you got to bring a a couple coolers with ice and everything and just... Making sure that food stays at the right temperature because obviously it can not be good if it doesn't stay... For sure. Properly refrigerated. Yep. So yep. it's a great question. Thanks, buddy, for uh, taking the time. You bet. You have a good evening. All right. You too. Bye-bye. So I think that worked out pretty cool. It was fun to get Peter involved via a phone a friend option. All right. Let's see here. We've got Remy.dy underscore. Is that right? Okay. 
Go for it. Yes. Okay. So how do you gauge if a bird is high enough to shoot over the dog without risking the dog's safety? Don't shoot the dog. That is a very, very good question and a very responsible question to ask as a dog owner and hunter. So there's a couple different parts of this. First of all, it kind of depends on where you're at and who you're hunting with and what kind of birds you're hunting with and all of those different things. So when I hunt and guide and the guys that run, uh, shoot around my dogs will hear me yell it, uh, well, let's say sternly explain this situation on a semi-regular basis. Safety we, talks. Uh, safety, safety talks. talks. Um, we want to see the birds clear the horizon. Let's see some blue sky underneath that bird. And the, the thing about that is if that bird's cleared that, not only is it safer for the dogs, but it's also going to be safer for the people. When we hunt South Dakota, there's usually, uh, walkers and blockers. You're walking toward each other. And if you're shooting at that, it's, it, it basically ends up being about a 45 degree angle or higher. A lot of times, um, it puts everybody in a safer situation. Now, when I hunt with my dogs, um, especially if we're hunting quail, rarely do we get an opportunity on quail for those birds to clear the horizon. Usually they come out lower. Um, you don't get a lot of height out of a quail. And granted, no bird is worth one of our dogs, but as often as we shoot, I'm extremely aware extremely aware of where my dogs are at, where the people are at, all of those type of situations. And if I have a bird come out to the right wide and I'm on the right side or to the left wide, I'm on the left side of a situation, um, I'll take a shot at a lower bird because I know I've got two dogs on the ground. They're both right there pointing. The situation is going to be safe. Even to the extent uh, awareness wise in training, a lot of times I can shoot, and this is not trying to brag, this is just the situation. I can shoot either one-handed or I'll be watching the dog that's supposed to be steady and I'll go, you know, so there's that much of just knowing where surroundings are and everything else. So, um, but as a general rule, I'm going to say if that bird is clearing the horizon, you're going to be a lot safer for the guys that you're hunting with and the dogs that you're hunting with couple things that I just want to add to keep in mind because like Ethan said, no dog is worth taking a bird for. Never. Um, so elevation is really important. You know, keeping that in mind if your dog and the bird is flying up an incline or down an incline. Oh those- yeah. So what she's saying elevation wise is if you're hunting in a hilly area. Yes. Right? Ele- changes in elevation. Well, and, and that's a huge thing because um, draws... Those are going happen. to be typically where the better cover is and where birds like to hang out out of the weather, out of the wind, out of the conditions. So um, you end up a lot of times where you're on the top of the draw or you're on the bottom of the draw. You're and, not shooting down in that draw where people and dogs are at. And that same situation that I just explained, like I just need a little blue sky underneath that bird. That could be, you know, basically at four feet off the ground or three feet off the ground, which is right at dog level, depending on exactly where they pop out of the draw or anything else. Now, the next thing that always gets brought up in this specific question or around this specific question is steady to wing and shot training or steady to wing shot and fall training. And I will say, I personally do not hunt any of my dogs steady to wing shot and fall. All of them break with the bird. I believe two things. One uh, we've got a better chance of recovering if there's a situation where the bird's crippled. I mean, I don't ever, 
ass, but if you guys have all seen me miss. That that's not that. It would be more like uh, oh ha 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 ha. I don't ever miss, right? Um, so, so uh, this the situation comes into play though that we have a better chance of recovering wounded game if that so happens. And the other side of it is it is very difficult to maintain. Now, some dogs are going to naturally want to stand more than others, and I have some dogs that naturally stay steadier than others. Um, but ultimately, maintaining with the average dog, steady doing shot and fall training is difficult, and it gets sloppier and sloppier as you go throughout the season, and it can kind of send mixed signals. So the dog's breaking a wing is a lot more natural. It's a lot easier on everybody involved trying to handle the situation. So... Um, but there is a slight amount of risk increase in the fact that the dog could be there. You've got to have, you got to be paying attention as well as the people that are hunting with you need to be paying attention. So yeah, definitely trusting the people that you're hunting with is important. Um, and just also knowing your dog in training, we've seen dogs that are extremely athletic and very bird driven Mm -hmm. and they can almost get on those birds as fast as they flush and are jumping up six, seven feet in the air trying to grab that bird uh, because they are only being required to be steady to wing, but they're fast and they're close to those birds and they're up on them right away. So you think you've got a safe shot and then poof, this dog is jumping up into the middle of your shot because they're that athletic. So knowing your dog. Talking in dog circles, which is pretty much what happens if you ever attend a dog event is just people talk about dogs. It's kind of why they're all there. It's why we're all there. I mean, dogs, right? So I was extremely surprised to hear how many people have either had a dog shot or actually shot their own dog accidentally um, for situations just like this. So I think the true thing comes down to, um, you know, a general rule for elevation is important, but just awareness, being aware of your surroundings and understanding that, you know, we, when you pull that trigger, you're responsible for where that round ends up, whether that be person, dog, whatever. I mean, it's, it's just being aware of your environment. And the more you get to hunt and the more you get to be around that, the more you're going to have a better feel for what's going on. And just always understanding that if you're unsure of a shot, just don't take it. There'll be yeah. other opportunities. And I know when the bird numbers are low and the opportunities to get out and hunt are few and far between that it makes you want to take those opportunities, especially because you feel like you need to reward your dog. Well, shooting your dog is not going to be a very good reward. So just be very sure and don't take risks that you don't have to. Absolutely. Great question. Great question. Next question from Willow.the.wirehair. <laughs> Willow the wire hair. If you get a dog that hates her paws touched, how do you get her used to trimming their nails? So a couple of things. Um, if you have a dog that hates their paws touched, you're going to have to work through that at some point because in order to trim their nails, you have to be able to touch them. If your dog is not liking their paws touched or they don't like the nail trimmer touching their nails or they don't like the Dremel sound, it can be a mixture of those things. So one thing that I would recommend, just break that nail trimming down into smaller steps and reward good behavior. Don't let your dog get out of the situation. So we like to trim dogs' nails typically lying on their backs in between our legs, but there's other options as well. If you have a dog that completely hates that 
position and just get super anxious and you can't work through it laying there for 30 minutes and your dog just won't relax and they're sitting there trembling, you can try other options. That's why groomers have grooming tables that they can, you know, tether the dog to. So you can try other things. We trim dogs' nails standing upright and just picking up their feet. Yeah, um, more like a farrier would handle a horse. A horse, yep. yep. So that's, I mean, honestly, with our adult dogs, that would be the way that I do it probably 95% of the time. And I would do it 95% of the time laying on their back between my legs with yeah. our personal adult dogs. Just personal preference of how we like to trim nails and feel comfortable doing it too. They're so, I mean, they're so well behaved because of the conditioning and everything else that they'll do either. And I can go through all of our dogs in a matter of maybe five minutes. And I just take the extra time to love and cuddle on them. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> so working through that first step of feeling comfortable either on their back or on a table or standing there where you're picking up their paw. And then just reach for their paw and hold their paw. And if they start pulling and fighting, don't let go. Don't give in to that. Just hold on. And as soon as they stop fighting, that's when you say, oh, good job. And, let and their give paw their go. paw back. Yep. We're not even talking about trimming a nail at this point. We're just talking about getting them comfortable being held in those positions, manipulating their paws, isolating a toe, um, messing with them a little bit. Then when they get comfortable with that, pull the nail trimmer out. Pick the nail trimmer up. Hold it in your hand. Hold their paw in your other hand. And then when they're relaxed and not struggling, go ahead and set that down. Don't even trim a nail. And you're going to have to, if your dog is truly that freaked out and fighting about just touching their paws, you're going to have to break these into very small steps and get there and build on the success, uh, but not trying to speed through it, cut corners or rush things. Uh, some dogs don't like Dremels, and that freaks them out, the sound of them. Oh, so, for sure. So just not even using a Dremel and starting with the nail trimmer, or vice versa. The clipping pressure might freak them out, so just start with the Dremel. Um, and if you're trying to get your dog used to the Dremel, just turning it on and letting them hear that sound before you even try and touch it to their nails is another small step that you can make. I think with a Dremel, too, a lot of problems can be caused. Um, they're a great tool for shaping and uh, you know, kind of simulating the the digging or grinding process, which can help quicks recede if you're trimming properly. But um, if you leave that Dremel on there that for too long, yeah, the friction gets really hot. Gets hot. Yeah. If you've ever gotten your nails done, ladies, and they're, you know, buffing your nail with that Dremel on your nail and they leave it in one place too long, it gets hot and very uncomfortable pretty quickly. And you think about, well, I'm trying to get a lot of nail worked down with this Dremel, so I got to hold it there for a really long time. That's going to become very uncomfortable for your dog very quickly. Very uncomfortable. So really good question. I think that we covered that pretty well. Good deal. Good deal. All right. Next, we've got Aberlin147. It says, beeper training on a dog with two seasons under their belt. I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about beeper conditioning with like a beeper collar. Is that, I'm assuming that as well. Okay. So if that's the case... Um, with two seasons under their belt, one season under their belt, no season under their belt, you can definitely do this and utilize the beeper collars. We use, again, we mentioned before, DT Systems products. They have a couple different beeper collars in their line. And um, they're very cool because they have a motion sensor in them. So when the dog's moving, it can tell that. When the dog stops, it can tell that. And you have a couple different features. Um, the three main parts of that are you have locate. So you can hold down the button. You can hear the dog's at. You have a uh, run mode. So while the dog's actively running around, it's going to beep, which beeps all day. Not my thing. But uh, then actually beeps faster when the dog stops. 
And then the mode that I run it in almost exclusively would be point mode. And that's just going to be so it doesn't beep unless the dog locks up on point. So you're silent. You can watch the dogs. You can enjoy the day and then beep, beep. Then you go, ha ha, stuff's about to get real. So um, the key to that is getting them used to it. Uh, what we're going to do is put the plug, if you still have that, that comes we with actually GTs. actually have a video. Yeah, we have a video. Conditioning your puppy to, or your dog that's had a couple seasons under their belt to a beeper collar. Cover the beeper up a little bit, let it beep. Just let them get used to it. Um, as long as it's not too loud, uh, just leave it on them. And as soon as they stop ignore, uh, they start ignoring it or stop paying attention to it. You're and good can to go. relax. Yep, relax through the beep. So great question. Moving on, I want to start. I'm an, I'm going to be the question asker because these are kind of fun questions that we're going to be asked here in a minute. Okay. A little more personal. We got a we got a good variety this time of hunting questions, training questions, vet questions, and get to know Cat and Ethan questions. So perfect. I'm ready. Shoot. Ah. From I thirty three wit, Ethan versus Cat. Oh. Who has better Navda test scores at each level? Ah, uh, you just want to ask that. Ethan, Cat. what do you think? Cat, hundred percent. Well, first 100%. of all, I do typically do more of the testing in Navda than Ethan does. Um he does a lot of AKC testing at different levels, but a lot of the more advanced levels with master hunters and then a few senior hunter testing um, and very few junior hunter level tests. Yeah, we don't run a lot of that, but um, primarily we run senior master dogs and the AKC side. And I've also ran master, junior, senior level tests in AKC as well. But with Navda, I guess I've kind of made that my niche mm-hmm. and... You do a good job with it. I've run a lot of puppies um, through natural ability tests. That's something that we ask our puppy buyers to participate in for a couple of reasons. Um, It allows them to start working with their puppy sooner instead of going, oh, you know, they're just, you know, a year-old puppy. They're just a two-year-old puppy that has had no training, and then they're this wild, crazy monster that needs some work. (laughs) Uh, So it encourages that early beginning development as well as it's a way to evaluate our breeding programs and say these litters are really performing well in these areas because we can look at all those test scores. For sure, because we don't get to see every single puppy out of our program, and it's nice to be able to know how they're doing. Yep, so it's a really great evaluation tool for breeders. Um, And then I've run dogs at the utility level. Uh, I've gotten anywhere from prize ones headed to the invitational to no prizes. That happens. It happens. So... Um, but I would say because I've done more, my average scores are higher or I have more of them. One of the two. Cat. Cat's the answer. (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, next question that, uh, has a little bit of a personal touch to it, which is always kind of fun and interesting to see what people want to know about us. What do we got? From LW underscore 4H underscore Prez. What was the hardest part while you were pregnant training dogs, Kat? This one's for me, honey. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. The hardest part about training dogs while Kat was pregnant (laughs) is... (laughs) Actually, I would say the hardest part of training dogs while being pregnant was finding clothes that fit. There are not a lot of maternity options for upland hunting gear. Oh, am I not being hurt super well? No, I just turned it to where you were at. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Maternity clothes for upland hunting clothes. 
very limited selection. So I was actually doing my NAVDA judging apprenticeship and becoming a judge was really important to me. And through that apprentice program, wearing proper clothing, collared, shooting shirts, typically polos of some kind and uh, khaki pants or upland pants. stretch in most of that stuff. That was tough. I uh, was limited on my wardrobe for sure, but... In all seriousness, seriousness, uh, other than my wardrobe, uh, my center of gravity was a little bit off. So my balance was difficult to maintain in the field. Uh, my body definitely struggled with, I had a hyperextended knee at one point, struggled with plantar fasciitis, like my entire pregnancy. Um, so those physical things were tough and the dogs would run past you and kind of give you a little nudge and you'd be like, Whoa, I'm going to fall over. And actually one time I almost did and Jess actually caught me. Luckily she was walking right beside me. Um, So I would say that was probably the most difficult thing. But I still loved being out there working with the dogs and training the dogs. And um, I'm glad that I did it. Next question. Next question. Another kind of personal question. Missy Sinwell, how long have you two been together? How did we meet? What got you started in dog training? It's like a three-parter. Perfect. So, so, how long have we been together, honey? Well, <laughs> uh, we've been married for 12 years this year. Yep. This year will be 12 years. And then you count all the other stuff. We dated, we knew we dated for a year. We we're engaged for a year. We knew each other before then for 12 a years. years. So, yeah. 12 years we've been married. And in a few months. Yeah, pretty much. As far as how, how did we meet? How did we meet? Uh, actually, with a mutual family hobby. Um, it's called rendezvousing, which uh, the easiest way to describe it to people would be if you've heard of Civil War reenactments, it's similar as to that, but a different time period. More of the fur trade era. Yeah, so pre 1840s is the general rule. And sleeping out in canvas tents, cooking over open fire, shooting muzzleloaders, throwing tomahawks, shooting bows and arrows. Yep. And the, the crazy thing about that actually is that uh, both my family and her family did, I'd been doing it since I was a little boy. And then there's actually a big regional event that um, the first one of those that I even went to was actually the first one that her and her family went to. Yep. And uh, we didn't meet there, but that was, I think, back in 2005, maybe. Goodness. It, no, it had to be before. It was, it was, two, it was 2005. No, no because <laughs> I graduated in 2004 and it was definitely before then. Okay. So it was 2003. I think so. I think it was. I might agree with him on that. But we met at one of those. And uh, it was nice that we shared that interest because getting somebody involved in that. It's difficult. We've even tried You probably just listened to this and went, what, what the heck? I was expecting them to have met at some dog event. <laughs> but you, um, you go, you camp, you are as primitive as possible. Anything that's not primitive, like coolers, we have those. Um, any of that kind of stuff is hidden out of sight. That's the idea. If you can't see it, it's usually all right. But um, everything in plain sight is as primitive as is possible. Uh, we shoot bows and arrows. Primitive we throw bows. throw tomahawks. Um, which, we, is, 
way cooler than the axe throwing stuff at these bars. Yeah, we these went and did that. We but... went and did the axe bar. The axe, throwing an axe is a lot different than throwing a tomahawk, honestly. So if you get the opportunity to try either, uh, throwing tomahawks is better. Um, <laughs> it is. And then we shoot muzzleloaders, both shotgun and rifles. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of cool. Yeah. So that would be how we met. And then when did we get started in dog training? What, what, what got, what us, got started us started in dog, dog training? training. Um, our, both of us grew up and enjoyed hunting, bird hunting, and... Neither of us had bird dogs, though. Neither of us had bird dogs, no. And we decided that, uh, I decided, I mean, I, I wanted a bird dog. My parents kind of said, nah, you can't have a bird dog. We've done the dog thing. We're not doing any more dog things. We're too busy with sports and other crap that you guys are doing at school. And we got a dog, like we'd mentioned before, in college. And- in an apartment. Didn't really know a whole lot and did all of the research that I possibly could and just fell in love, basically. Yep. So getting our first dog and not knowing what to do and making all of the beginning mistakes uh, yeah, got I us mean, into dog training. That's the that's the biggest thing that we try and stress to people uh, through that reach out. A lot of people say, I've got a dumb question. Um, it's not a dumb question and we've probably already done it and screwed it up. So we've been there, done that and understand what you're going through. So it's, I mean, that's why we're here to help. Excellent question. Excellent question. Do you have any more of those fun questions? Yes, I oh. have to find it because it's also, it kind of actually segues back to, uh, how oh. did we meet? So okay. question from dryfly 9 What's the funniest thing you've ever had a dog do? <laughs> I, I I at least have something pictured in my mind. I don't know. Do you uh, remember when you took our first dog shooter? Yeah. And yep. played butt darts? Shooter one. We played butt darts. Yep. Now, th- I know. That sounds That just sounds ridiculous. terrible. I know. Uh, it, but basically, the equivalent of this game is, first of all, it's hilarious. Um, second of all, it's a lot of fun. And third of all, it's really pretty difficult. Um, so... You take, um, this is a rendezvous game. You take a lead ball and And they're in different sizes because they're different caliber lead balls. Yep. So it starts with a 100 caliber ball typically is the biggest. And that's a one inch, if if I'm, if I'm right, somebody can correct me, but it's a one inch ball. Big. Lead. You know, you're talking, um, you put that between your legs. And you have to pinch it there, and you have to do a little waddle walk down a lane. Usually, it's only about 10 yards, maybe. Not very feet, long. 15, and then you got feet. a little cast iron pot about, yay big. That's only, that's only about that deep, too. And it's on three little wobbly legs. Yep. And then you have to kind of position yourself and drop the ball into the cast iron pot. Pot. Yep. And if it stays in, you get to advance to the next round. They if give it you falls out, you like fall it out, tips over yep, or something, you're out. you're out. Yep. So, um, cat is a multiple time, um, butt dart and flaming butt dart champion. We'll get yep. into flaming butt darts another day. Um, <laughs> we will. It involves losing your eyebrows though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, in this competition, I was still in and I oh, actually, to, to, just segue or give a little more background. Sure. There's also a panel of judges. So your style points. Yeah, style yeah. points. How you get from the starting line to the pot. And when you get later in rounds, especially those style points really, because they'll, they'll speed the game up. So it doesn't take forever. They'll be like, ah, you're out. This person's like doing backflips with the lead ball between their legs and you just walked. So 
get out of here. And it's it just makes for a lot of fun for people to watch. So as the rounds continue, this is where I was getting to, the ball gets increasingly smaller down to the last game that we played ended with a seven and a half shot pellet. So like itty bitty. And yeah, like break open your shotgun yes. shell and Se- grab one of them. So Anyhow, I, we were. I was still in at this time, and I am not near as good as Cat is at this. And I, he I was going know. for style points. I was only trying for style points. So, uh, shooter one. Long story short, here we go. Shooter one. Um, well, you needed the background so you knew what the heck butt darts was. But shooter one is healing next to me, and I got down, and he and I army crawled, and he army crawled next to Ethan. He got down all the way down, and we. Crawled all the way down the whole lane, and I dropped the ball, and I think I missed. I don't I'm pretty sure you made it. I made that one. I think you made that one, because I was very impressed. Army crawled all we the way We were already down. married, though, so it wasn't like he was winning me over at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was actually pretty, I mean, because I... I didn't even teach him how to do that. I don't. I don't know what my thought process was that he was going to do with me. But I don't know. Just, I think you just thought a dog involved in this. You could win. help. And then he decided that he would crawl with me. So that was pretty funny. Yeah, it was pretty funny. It was. It was definitely the funniest thing we've ever had a dog do. That especially wasn't even trained or taught to do it. <laughs> so great question. I think that's pretty much all of the actual. Uh, personal questions that we got this time. So I think we can go back to getting a few more training questions thrown in. Let's see if we can get two more questions answered. We're coming up on the end of our time for today. Well, you better pick one. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Here's one. I'll get this one for you. Oh, this one's for me? Yeah, I'll read it for you since you can't find one. Got it. Die, try, I don't know. D-Y-T-R-Y-C-H. Die, trike. 36. Okay. How do you get puppies to stop nipping at hands when they want to play? Okay. That's a great one. And it's a very common issue or problem. Um, Dogs play and explore the world with their mouths, much like babies do. Um, The big difference is babies don't have sharp teeth like dogs do. So um, first of all, it's completely normal. Yeah. Completely normal, completely natural for the dogs to want to put everything in their mouths, including your hands. Now, we uh, often amplify that problem by doing all of our treat training or food-based training because that food all comes out of our hands. So the dogs get even more comfortable biting or nipping at our hands. Or having an an open mouth with your hand. Towards our hands. Now, in those situations, a lot of times it just involves patience. We, If we get to the point where I've got a dog that's uh, nipping, biting, being a little more vicious with the situation, uh, we're going to hold that back and keeping it in our hand and giving a small verbal correction, ah, 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 something to that effect. And then um, as they calm down, then opening our hand and allowing them to eat it calmly. Now, as far as playing side of things go, I'm going to break this down in a as simple a process as I can. If you're playing with your puppy, you know, rolling around on the ground and they're biting your hands, um, the easiest way to work through that is to take your hands out of their mouth. True, but... <laughs> um, take your hands out of their mouth and avoid that aspect of things. But at the same time, when they continue that play biting stuff, um, there can be correction of all of that. So you would take the puppy and 
say hey and scruff them a little bit. Now, the next part of this that often gets confused and or not quite done properly is bite inhibition training. And the importance of that is not to teach puppies to not bite you, but it's actually to show them the amount of pressure that they can use when they bite you. Okay. So if you can, if you can wrap that around, it's when they go to bite you, we make the ouch noise or you make a noise. Now, the biggest mistake that people make with this, and we hear this all the time, I've tried ouch and it doesn't work. Well, you're going ouch, ouch, ouch. That sounds more exciting. It sounds more playful. Yep. So you're, you are aggravating the situation, ramping that situation up. Now it needs to be something that's startling. Now, if you ever get to the opportunity to watch dogs interact with each other, if one puppy is biting, it's not, they don't go ouch, ouch, ouch. They scream bloody murder. It's like something that says, ouch, that that hurt. hurt. And you have to find whatever that level is, even if it's to the point where I've had some puppies that are bolder and I just like, they bite at me and I yell almost right in their face. It's like, ouch, so that it startles them and they go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bite you. And then they can learn that was too much pressure. Once you get to the point where they aren't biting with a lot of pressure anymore, you've you've taught them what is acceptable with people, your clothes included in that, your hands included in that, and then we can um, eliminate the behavior altogether. Now, why do we teach them not to? Sometime down the road, if there's ever a situation where you're trying to help your dog if they get caught in a trap or they're hurt or you're trying to separate something, they already know and a lot of times in those situations going to help prevent you from getting bit hard in that situation. So, But there's also a smaller window that you have to do bite inhibition training. Has to be done with their puppies. Yep. So I don't know what the magic number is as far as age goes, but I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of under six months. Don't quote me on that. I'll try and look it up and maybe get back to it when the next person asks us about it. But ultimately, start with that bite inhibition training. Um, and then when you're, uh, and then you can start with some form of correction and then redirecting focus. They want to chew on something. Let's give them something to chew on. So great question. It's a, it's a really great question and you are not alone in having that problem. So next really great question. Tips for soon to be puppy owners. I hear that it is hard work, but how hard really? That was from puppy love underscore GSP. Is that for me? No, that's for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I read it to myself. So yes, having a puppy is difficult. It's not easy, especially if you want to do it right, which involves the crate training, like we were talking about at the beginning. Some puppies are going to be more determined, more demanding than others. Some puppies are going to adjust to their crate fairly quickly and quietly. Some puppies are going to be cleaner than others. Some puppies are going to be cleaner than others. Some puppies are going to struggle with potty accidents and bladder control for a lot longer. Absolutely. Um, So it definitely can be harder based on your puppy, but you have to think about it. Your puppy is going to have a underdeveloped bladder for a long time. So puppy accidents are going to happen, whether it's in the crate or in the house. Mm -hmm. So that's difficult. Um, Puppies are going to bite you. (laughs) That's going to be difficult to get over. Um, Puppies take a lot of time for mental and physical exercise. And yep, the stimulation and making sure they are not just allowed to play incessantly in the backyard. There needs to be structures involved as well. So that's why I said, if you're doing it right, 
and trying to properly develop your puppy and socialize them and prepare them to be nice, well-rounded family dogs and hunting companions, it's, there's going to be a lot of work involved. Now you put the time in now to develop your dog and your puppy into the dog that you want it to be. Once you get past that year mark, year and a half mark, it's going to be nice, smooth sailing for the most part. I mean, dogs still can get hurt and vet expenses and things like that, but your dog's going to be well-trained, hopefully, whether you do it yourself, reach out to some professionals for help, uh, follow along with our YouTube series, join us on Patreon, all those options, um, as well as hopefully a hunting season under their belt. So then they've gained that experience, that real world hunting experience that they can't be prepared for any other way. And then it's going to be gravy. So put the time in now. It's going to be tough. Um, It's not going to be the same level of tough for the first entire year and a half. That's not what I'm saying. It's going to progressively get easier, but you put your time in now, you do your due diligence, and it's going to go a lot smoother after that. No doubt about it. Puppies can be a lot of work, but uh, it can be very rewarding. So We do have to ask just one last question. One more, then we got to call it. And then we got to call it, I know. Who's your mortgage guy? After introducing a dog, I know. It's, a, it's, it's you again. Who, I was like, who's, who, what does this have to do with dogs? All right. After introducing a dog to a two and one primer, do you go straight to a shotgun? No. So detailed. I guess we're cutting it short. <laughs> um, it, it really kind of depends on the experience that the dog has. The other side of things that we do use pretty regularly would be uh, poppers or blank loads. Uh, the we ones that we use Kent would be pro Kent's, trials. yeah, Kent's pro trial blanks, I think is what the exact name of them is, but that's going to be a good, uh, middle ground, middle ground for that. Yep. The other side of it is if you've got a dog that's bold and confident and not paying attention at all to the gunfire, they're focused on the bird, they're focused on the drill, they're focused. Um, that might be a dog that we would pretty much go from that to a shotgun, but it really is going to be better to utilize some type of middle ground and those blank loads are, is a, is a pretty good one. Yes. And his second part of that also favorite pheasant recipe. And I thought this was a great opportunity to talk about the fact that we love answering your questions that you've got on this Yawa series. We've been doing training videos forever with our puppy series and we love helping educate people and share our knowledge But we also have been really enjoying going on some hunts together now that we can do that together a little bit more often and then being able to cook what we kill. Yes. Um, So we are, we're pretty, all right. So a big thing for us is in the summer, especially is beer can chicken. We absolutely love it. It turns out great. It's not like we eat every day, but it's, it's delicious. Do it on the trigger. So we're going to do it with a pheasant. I've got a couple whole birds lined up. Uh, We're going to throw... We're going to do, we've got, we'll have to get skinny, skinny cans. cans, probably maybe even those like little eight ounce, um, little eight ounce beers instead of the, yep. like, I don't know. I can just think of like Michelobes are usually yeah. in the skinny cans. Yeah. Those Chickalobe ultras might fit, or I'm talking like the little, uh, like chiladas, chilada cans that are eight ounces or something like that. Mm-hmm. The real small ones. So we'll have to get some smaller beer cans, but we're going to make beer can pheasant on the Traeger, and we will let you all know when how that, that goes live. Yeah, and how that goes, because it sounds delicious. All right. I know we could sit here and do this all evening, especially Cat, who has jumped in all of the extra questions just for y'all. Um, but thanks, everybody, for the questions. Uh, this will be up soon. And then, again, we will be reaching out on our social pages, asking for more questions, because we are here to answer those for you. 
And if you're just jumping in and seeing these videos for the first time, make sure you're subscribing to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any more great videos. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Kat the dog trainer. Thanks again.